Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, I am Patrick Colley. I am with Keystone Elder Law, a law firm in Mechanicsburg, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. We have as our goal to be the shield that protects the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. So in the last episode of this show, I told you about Joe, a guy who did absolutely no planning before he was diagnosed with dementia. And by the time his his daughter realized uh, you know, how expensive Joe's care would be, the opportunity to save money and to make things go smoothly for the family uh, had mostly been lost. I hope that you know the, the, the you took away something from this. One person in particular uh, thanked me for the show, but but said that I scared the heck out of him. And he went on to explain that that you know his circumstances sounded an awful lot like Joe's. But really, the takeaway I I wanted you to have is that life gets challenging as you get older. The rates of dementia diagnosis are on the rise. People have strokes. They have falls. And they get injuries and and lack of mobility going forward. They have other medical challenges that come with the need for long-term care. This is a very common and predictable threat for the middle class. And unlike the very wealthy, who really have the same likelihood of, of a decline in health, the middle class is going to have a much harder time paying $13,000 or $14,000 a month for care. So when you combine the statistics from the Alzheimer's Association that say one in three people will have dementia, the statistics that say pretty much two-thirds of us or close to 70% of us will need a higher level of care in the later years of life, and then you combine in the very high cost of that care, it's, it's simply astounding that more people aren't talking about planning options to be ready for this challenge, this predictable specific threat to your life savings and maybe people aren't talking about it because they don't know that this is a problem and well that's that's why i'm doing this show that's why i provide weekly online workshops uh they're called middle class estate planning and asset protection and also uh, a workshop on the details of how to pay for long-term care if you're if you're interested in getting more information, if you didn't realize that that these were uh, big threats and challenges that that were in the future for you, well, go to KeystoneElderLaw.com, click on the workshops tab, and there you'll see how you can register for one of these uh, proactive estate planning and asset protection or long-term care payment uh, workshops, and and then you you know you can attend from the comfort of your own home with your iPad or your laptop, ask questions and I will answer them. The whole point is let's get the word out about this and hopefully you're you're hearing this and, and it's raising some questions for you and, and giving you some answers and, and maybe you'll spread the word, uh, tell people about the workshops, tell people about the Later in Life Planning Show. In any event, my goal with the Later in Life Planning Show and with the workshops is to spread the word about these specific, predictable threats that people need to know about. Once you see what I see on a weekly basis at Keystone Elder Law, I see families facing down the long-term care system with no clue about care options available, no idea how they're going to pay for it, you'll understand the importance of taking action well in advance to build a shield 
and be ready for that challenge to come to your family. Of course, long-term care is what I talk about a lot, but it's not the only challenge that people face. It just tends to turn up the volume on every other type of challenge. So let's say you are in a second or a third marriage, and there are children from previous marriages. Well, that's a complicated situation to begin with, but let me tell you how it gets really tense, really emotional, when one of the spouses needs long-term care. Because then, of course, the question comes up, well, whose money is paying for this? Uh, especially if the children from the previous marriage really need to inherit money. They, you know, they're waiting on that money. Then you can be sure that things are going to get tense. And, you know, so if somebody needs uh, long-term care, if they need a little extra care in their home, whatever the case may be, their questions will be asked about whose money is being used. And then when we get into Medicaid planning to spare the family from having to pay for expensive care, well, the best way to save 100% of the couple's money is to get all of it, and this is a very simplified Reader's Digest summary of Medicaid planning, but we're going to get all of the money out of the name of the person who needs care and into the name of the spouse. The law allows us to do that. There's no penalty like there would be if you just give your money away to your kids. So that's what we're going to do. But now, of course, what are the children from the previous marriages thinking when, you know, all of mom or dad's money is now with this new spouse? Maybe you will never need long-term care. That's not a threat that will come your way, so you're one of the lucky ones. But you're concerned about the government taking taxes out of your estate. Uh, You wanted to leave that money to your adult children. Well, that's another challenge that you need to plan for. Like I said, life gets challenging. Life gets complicated the older you get. So if you have a child with a disability or special needs, that's another challenge. That's another complication as life goes on. You would probably do anything for that child with a disability or special needs. You would lay down in traffic if it would somehow help make life better for that child. But I know what keeps you up at night is what will what will support that child? Who's going to be there for that child when you're gone? And there are a number of ways to plan for uh, a, a child with special needs to support them, enhance their quality of life for decades to come. Um, here's the spoiler alert, giving that child money directly or leaving money directly in a will or an insurance policy is probably not a good idea, especially if the child needs SSI or Medicaid for the basics of having a place to live and having medical care. Another challenge that comes along is if you just have adult children who have creditors coming after them, Maybe they're going to go through a divorce. Maybe they have addiction and leaving money to them would would be a lethal mistake. Uh, You know, maybe it's just somebody who has real problems with saving money and managing money. They get money, they spend money. All of these are complications and, and, you know, you have to have a plan. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but you can't just buy a one-size-fits-all solution to this online. There's no Amazon uh, offering for this. Uh, Your family needs a plan that fits the unique needs of your family. So I guess what's encouraging is, you know, I pretty routinely have 300 people signing up for an online workshop on a Wednesday evening, and that tells me that many people are searching for answers. They have a sense that life is going to get more challenging as they get older. They just need some guidance on what to expect and how to be ready for it. They're not really even sure where to start. 
So I guess I'm a little more concerned about the folks who think they already have the answers. They think they are protected from long-term care costs. These are the folks who tend to get their information from a buddy. You know, they they had dinner together and the, the buddy said, this is what I did. And so that's the answer for uh, the person who thinks they have it all taken care of. But you know, it, it tends to turn out the buddy was either completely wrong or the buddy was right, but his circumstances were very different. And so it's not a solution that will work in the new set of, of uh, facts for that family. So, you know, sometimes some t- uh, people are actually getting their, their advice from professionals. So you might get really good tax advice that turns out to be terrible advice when you need long-term care. And I, and I understand that's frustrating when you think you had it all taken care of. You took action. You went to a professional. Maybe you got good tax advice, and then I'm the one telling you that this is going to blow up when it comes to having Medicaid pay for long-term care. So here's what I want to do. I mean, correcting mistaken assumptions is usually harder than educating a person who has absolutely no idea what to expect. But that's what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try to go through some of the most common myths and mistakes that people make based on bad information, or maybe it's sometimes no information at all. Again, uh, I'll go through these. I know it's all the rage on, uh, you know, on the media or to click on this. It's the top 10 reasons why you should do this or that. And I'm going to try to hit 10. I'll see how much time I have today. But I'm going to go through some of the most common myths and mistakes, but what I want to do is is emphasize before I go into them that, you know, education first. You need to learn what these, the information, you need to ask questions, and then you need to take action. And the action can't just be, you know, go out and do it yourself. I'm, I'm sorry to say that a lot of these concepts, the reason there are misconceptions is because it's complicated and because it's very... Uh, it has to be tailored to your circumstances or else it won't work. So this isn't like redoing your kitchen, but I'm going to try to at least give you a sense of all the moving parts. And then, uh, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll reach out or you'll reach out to another elder law attorney and you'll, uh, you'll take some action on this. So what's a good first step after you hear these top 10 mistakes? You'll get a sense of where people go wrong, but I would suggest signing up for one of our online workshops. It's free. All you have to do is set aside maybe an hour on a Wednesday evening. That's usually when they are. I'll answer questions. I'll give you a lot of information, and I think that's a good place to start. But I'm going to go to a break, and when I come back, I'll go through the top mistakes and myths that people uh, have based uh, based on bad information. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio, WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio, WHP 580. Welcome back. I am Patrick Cauley with Keystone Elder Law. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show. Wherever you're hearing my voice right now, whether it's on the radio, whether it is on the iHeartMedia app, or perhaps on some other podcast player, thank you for listening. Before the break, I was saying that there's a lot of people who are looking for answers. There's also a lot of people who think they have it all figured out. And I want to go through some of the most common myths and mistakes that people have. Sometimes they take action based on these myths or mistakes, and it it really does not have great results for families. So let's just dive into them. The first one I hear a lot is, uh, number one, myth or mistake, Medicare will pay for my nursing home. So I don't need to do any planning. I'm going to be sign up for Medicare. Well, 
wrong. Medicare is your health insurance for acute care. So Medicare is how you go to the doctor's appointment. That's how you go to the hospital, maybe have a surgery. That is a a care plan for somebody who develops a chronic condition that Uh, is treated with acute care, but it is not a long-term care solution. And long-term care, which is going to hit a a very large percentage of the population, is where things get very expensive, and you need something uh, to help you pay for that. Medicare is not it. Here is where Medicare might play some role in your long-term care. If you are admitted to the hospital, and I'm putting some emphasis on the word admitted because You know, you go to the ER, they might keep you in the hospital overnight. You might think you're admitted, but you're not. You're technically under observation. Uh, Because of this confusion, uh, the legislature in Harrisburg passed a law. They're actually supposed to give you a piece of paper that tells you what your status is. Are you admitted or are you under observation? In any event, if you're admitted and you're there for three midnights, you stay three overnights, And then they decide, well, you can't go home, but you can't stay here. You are going to be discharged to skilled rehab. So maybe you had a bad accident and you need uh, intensive physical therapy. Or uh, maybe it's you had a stroke and now you need some some work with occupational therapists. Uh, Whatever it might be, you're going to a skilled care facility. Well, Medicare then is going to pay for at least part of your stay. They're going to pay for the first 20 days with no copay whatsoever. Then the words up to come into play, up to 100 days with a copay. And some people might make it close to 100 days, but most do not. It's it's usually a couple weeks and then you get a notice, you have a few days Uh, before Medicare will end. And a lot of this comes down to whether you have traditional Medicare, whether you have one of the Medicare Advantage plans, which I'm finding and maybe you've seen in the news lately, uh, are not great when you get really sick. Uh, But, you know, that's another story for another day. So you're going to get this notice that they're going to cut you off. And when Medicare coverage turns off, it's because, uh, you know, maybe they say that the, the skilled rehab is unproductive or you have plateaued. That's a word that is still used, even though a court case said that's not the standard, because sometimes you're not making any greater progress, but you're at least not regressing. You're maintaining, and there's, there's value in that. But in any event, um, it often isn't worth fighting. They tell you they're not paying anymore, and then it's going to switch over overnight pretty much from Medicare paying for your long-term skilled care to you paying $13,000 a month. So that's quite a shock. But long story short, um, it's a lot of ifs for Medicare to play any role. But if it is playing a role in your long-term care, it's going to be for a very short time and then you go to paying full freight for skilled care. So that's mistake number one or myth number one. The second one is I have long-term care insurance. That's my long-term care plan. So I don't need any of your fancy legal planning. I got an insurance policy. If you have long-term care insurance and you're paying the premiums with no problem, even though they they send out these letters every so often telling you that they're about to uh, increase the premium uh, and they're going to do it again and again and again. If you're not having any problem with that, then good, because there is an upside to having long-term care insurance. Uh, But you have to understand its limitations. So if you have one of these really old policies, the ones they were handing out like candy in the 1980s and 90s, 
It covers everything with no limits. It, there's There are inflation riders to keep up with the cost of care that keeps going up and up and up. I would say you are holding the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, and you should keep that alive. Keep paying those premiums because you just don't see those anymore. They, they just don't make them like they used to. In fact, most of the carriers who were offering that kind of policy they lost their shirts, and they're all out of the business now. They don't do long-term care insurance anymore. But more likely, what you have these days, if you if you have a long-term care insurance policy, uh, is one that has certain limits baked into it that you need to know about. So one would be what's called the elimination period. So when you look at your policy documents, look for that language. Elimination period. It might say zero days. It might say 30 days, 100 days, 180 what that means is just you're going to notify the insurance company, I need to use long-term care insurance, I need care in my home, I need to go to an assisted living facility, and they're going to start the clock running, and whatever that elimination period is the time that you have to pay out of pocket before the policy starts paying for you. So, you know, once you get past that, what are some of the other limits baked into the policy? Well, there's probably going to be a cap on the daily amount that will be paid you know, if you got if you got this policy through your employer as a as a perk, it might be a hundred bucks a day. It might might be two hundred dollars a day. If you paid good money for this policy, it might might be three fifty. Well, the statewide average uh, daily cost of care in a skilled nursing facility is now over four hundred dollars a day. So you see where I'm going with this? That it's it's a good help, but it's not going going to be your complete plan. And the next cap that you have to look for is the cap on the lifetime amount that will be paid. So if it's either going to be a number of months, years, or more likely it's some dollar amount that once they've paid that much, they're not paying anymore. So again, I mean, what if you're otherwise healthy, but you have dementia, you're in whatever community or facility for five, seven years, you're well past the point where long-term care insurance has stopped paying. So it's a help, but, but it's not the total plan. The upside, I said there was an upside to long-term care insurance. There is. Uh, it gives you more flexibility uh, to stay in your home uh, without having to go into the highest level of nursing home care. So you might be, you, know, you have a home care agency coming and, and helping you through your day in your home and insurance is paying for it. You might be in assisted living or a personal care community, which is comfortable. Uh, it's not your home, but it's comfortable. Uh, Medicaid doesn't pay for that at all in Pennsylvania. So you have options available to you that other people don't. So don't get me wrong. If you if you have a good long-term care insurance policy and you can afford those premiums, then, you know, it, it's going to help. Um, but the lower levels of care are are more likely to involve private payment. So, so that, that insurance helps. I find most people don't have long-term care insurance or if they had it at one point, they stopped paying the premiums because it was eating into their daily budget uh, in retirement. So, you know, that's usually not a factor for people. In any event, look into those limits based, uh, baked into the policy. A related one is that uh, some people will say they're a veteran, the VA will take care of them. Not necessarily, and, and there's not enough time in a single episode to go into veterans' benefits, but really what, what you need for long-term care, again, Medicare versus Medicaid, uh, long-term care insurance, uh, the same sort of idea here. Veterans' aid and attendance is part of your pension benefit. Uh, you have to qualify for it, but that, that like long-term care insurance, is going to give you a little more flexibility. It's going to help with care in the home. It's going to help with assisted living 
well before you get to the highest level of nursing home, skilled nursing care. But you have to be eligible for, for that. We're not talking about going to the VA for your doctor's appointment or your medications. This is long-term care, so it's limited. You have to have been in active duty for at least 90 days. That's usually not hard to satisfy. You either know if you're in that or not. You had to have served at least one day in a wartime period. That's a period defined by Congress. So if you were in uh, active duty in the late 60s, maybe in the, uh, in the 90s, you, you served during a wartime period. If you were in, in the military in the 80s, you, you were not. Um, and then even after that, um, you ha- there are financial limits. So the more money you have, the more the benefit is reduced. It will help, but it's, an, it's not a complete plan. All of these moving parts come together. So again, don't confuse acute care with the long-term care. And don't think that any one of these, Medicare, long-term care insurance, or veterans benefits are going to be the entire solution. If you're starting to get the sense there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to planning for predictable threats in the years ahead, you are right. Um, and I try to synthesize all of this, put it all together, uh, maybe tell stories to to illustrate it. That's the whole point of my, uh, my workshops that I do. Uh, when we meet with clients at our office at Keystone Elder Law, that's, that's what we try to do. And of course, we have tons and tons of information on our website, keystoneelderlaw.com. If you need help tracking down information, I mean, you can go to the resources tab on our our website and and search by category for information, but you can always give us a call too. We have a registered nurse on staff who is a wonderful resource with sorting out various options. Our number is 717-697-3223. I'm going to take a break and I'll dive right back into the mistakes and myths that people have about planning ahead You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. Okay, so we're back into the myths and mistakes that people have when it comes to planning ahead for the years ahead, the challenges, and specifically the challenge of long term care, which is so incredibly common and which is a serious threat to the middle class because of how expensive it is. Uh, I'm up to number four, and number four is a big one. It's when people say to me, oh, my accountant told me that I can give my kids up to $17,000 each, and that's what I'm going to do every year. I'm going to give $17,000 to one child, $17,000 to the other child. If I have three, four kids, I'm going to give them each $17,000. I'm going to do that every year. And and that's how I'm going to keep my money in my family. Well, this is a point of confusion about gifting. And this leads to disastrous consequences for the middle class. And especially because the government talks out of both sides of its mouth on this issue. So on the tax side of things, your accountant is absolutely right. But that's the IRS rule book. In the IRS rule book, there's an amount that you can give away each year. And you don't even have to tell the IRS Uh, And then there's an amount you can give away in your entire life and in your estate when you're gone. The amount that you can give away every year to each person, each recipient, is $17,000 in 2023. And why wouldn't you do that? Because when you get that money out of your name, first of all, Pennsylvania has no similar gift tax where the government takes a chunk out of 
that transfer of wealth from one person to another. We have no gift tax, and and there is a federal gift tax, but you 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 give away this money if you don't go over seventeen thousand dollars. You don't even have to tell the IRS. Um, and then why wouldn't you do that? Because in Pennsylvania, we do have a tax that comes out of your estate when the the transfer happens. So why not tax free give the money away? Um, and and if what happens if you go over seventeen thousand? Well, you're technically supposed to file a gift tax return when you do your taxes in April, and you just tell the IRS, "Look, I went over seventeen thousand." And what happens if you don't file the gift tax return? Pretty much nothing, because the penalty for not filing a gift tax return is a percentage. You'd have to pay a percentage of the tax that would be owed. Well, you're not going to owe any taxes. There are very, very, very few people in central Pennsylvania who have to pay gift taxes to the federal government because in 2023, you can give away $13 million before you start paying the IRS any gift taxes or estate taxes. So it's just not a problem that a lot of people have. Uh, I do hope you develop that problem, by the way, but I don't think you probably have it right now. So why not give all your money away? The tax uh, rule book says that that's advantageous. That's something that's good to do. Well, here's the problem. When when it comes to long-term care, now we go to a different part of the government. This different part of the government administers Medicaid, and they get all in your business about how much money you have, what's your income, how much do you have in savings, have you gifted anything in the last five years. So when I put together a Medicaid application for someone, I mean, we did one in my office uh, maybe a month ago now. It was 1,800 pages. It looked like several New York City phone books. And why? Because you have to provide five years of bank statements from every financial institution where you have money. You have to provide five years of tax returns. And what are they looking at when they go line by line through all this information? They're looking for any month in the last five years when you gave away over $500 total. So forget 17000 to three different kids. It's $500, whether it's to one person or to three people total. And once you go over $500, now you're on the radar for gifting, which is going to make you ineligible for Medicaid. And they, they go through the whole five years. They add up the total amount of gifting that was done all those months where you went over $500 and they get a total dollar amount. Then from that dollar amount, they compute the number of days you have to go at a private pay rate. And remember, the private pay rate is often $13,000 a month. So that gifting comes comes back to haunt people. So imagine my shock and horror when a family comes in and says they've been following the accountant's advice. They've been giving away $17,000 to each child for the last five years. That is, you know, now we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Unless we can come up with a way to fix that problem, they're never going to be eligible for Medicaid. And and it gets worse. If they gave away all their money, they have no money anymore. Now they want... Uh, this care in the nursing home, but Medicaid's not paying for it. So if the nursing home's not getting paid, now in Pennsylvania, the law very clearly says the nursing home can sue the adult children. And what if they've spent all the money that was gifted to them? Well, if they own a house, say goodbye to the house. I mean, this is just a really ugly situation. And if you work with an elder law attorney, if you come to Keystone Elder Law, you will never get into this situation if you Come to us first, and this is a problem of acting on myths and mistakes and bad information because 
you know, you, you might get yourself into a situation you just can't get out of. This is not do-it-yourself stuff. So difference in gifting between the tax rules and the Medicaid rules. So, I mean, I could tell you more and more and more about gifting. I'll probably revisit this in future episodes. But gifting is, obviously, it's writing a check or giving cash to your to your kids. It's uh, helping them with, with expenses they have. You know, I did I did a Medicaid application maybe a year ago where... There were payments in the last five years to a school district in a county where the Medicaid applicant, my client, didn't even live, and it was pretty obvious. Uh, he was just helping his his adult child who was going through a hard time and, and just needed help with the bills, and that's what parents do. It's in your DNA. You want to help your kids, uh, but that's clearly gifting even if it wasn't money handed directly to the child. You know, you help them with something and it wasn't you're allowed to spend your money, of course, if you get some value out of it. But you can't provide that value in any form. You can't sell your your house or other property for less than fair market value and think you're being clever. The difference between what you sold it for and the fair market value is is what the gift is. So the gifting rule is just I mean, that's I'll come back to that over and over again, because that that really messes up a lot of middle class families. Um, and if you're thinking, here's the next one, number five, if, if you're thinking, well, the government won't know about my gifting, I, I just handed out cash. I just told you that we, we document extensively uh, the Medicaid applications, and that's required by law. So unless you had that cash hidden under your mattress for a very long time, there's no hiding a gift from the government. I mean, setting aside the ethics and, and whether you really want to lie to the government um, and defraud the government, that's, you know, we don't get behind that at Keystone Elder Law. We, we do have integrity and we're honest about everything we do. So, uh, but even if you tried, you couldn't do it. Um, you know, we, we go line by line through every statement. We know the money coming in, the money going out. And if, if we have to ask you, you know, in April, four years ago, what was this ATM withdrawal for $700? You know, we're going to, we're hoping you tell me, you know, well, here's the receipt. I bought something for that. Well, you're allowed to buy something for that. And was it for you? Uh, no, it was for my children. Well, that's the wrong answer. I mean, it's, we, we have to know and we have to document that you were buying something and not giving it away. And if we have no answer, they're going to assume it was a gift. So there really is no hiding withdrawals of cash. They can see from your tax statements how much uh, your tax returns and your bank statements, how much money you have and where it's leaving your accounts. So that's how we look at that. Um, So the next one, getting away from gifting a little bit, a little bit is, you know, I protected my house with Medicaid. So, uh, you know, sorry, Keystone Elder Law, I don't need one of your fancy trusts as an asset protection measure to protect my, my real estate. I just deeded the house over uh, so that now it's off the table. I don't have to worry about that with my long-term care expenses. Well, a number of issues to go over with this one, and I'll try to do it a little quickly. I might have to uh, take a break and come back for the end of this one. But if you deed your house over to your kids, you probably just made a number of mistakes. And I'll, I'll touch on the first one, and then we'll take a break. But people seem to think that you know, if you go to a nursing home, first of all, they think the nursing home takes your house. And that's why they, I think that's why they start to deed their house over to their children. That's not how it works. There's actually something called estate recovery, where the Medicaid part of the government comes after your house, not the nursing home. They're not in the real estate business. It's the, it's the government trying to get paid back from anything left in your estate when you pass away. Uh, they're getting paid back for all that care they paid for. So that's where the house comes in. You're even allowed to have a house when you go on Medicaid. 
Now, who knows who's paying for the upkeep of the house? That's another story because your income's going to a facility, but you're allowed to have a house. It's the estate recovery that that people, I think, are worried about. Other people deed their house over to their kids sort of as a DIY uh, plan to uh, avoid having the house go through probate. Um, I think they're maybe aware of the inheritance tax. You know, if you have a $200,000 house, that's thousands of dollars going to the government in inheritance taxes, so they want to avoid that, so they deed the house over. When we come back from the break, I'll, I'll explain that at least two mistakes you're making if you if you try to you know keep the house safe from long-term care expenses or if you try to avoid probate by deeding the house over to the children. You're, you're probably making a long-term care mistake. You're probably making a tax mistake. More on that and, of course, more on our website, Keystone Elder Law, where we have articles all about this subject. But for now, you're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, your host, Patrick Colley. Okay, so let's dive right back into some of the mistakes and myths that people have when it comes to planning ahead for challenges in the later years of life. People are doing things like, uh, transferring their homes to their children, their adult children. And I think they're doing this mainly to get around probate and the inheritance tax. I think they're doing this because they think that the nursing home, in quotes, nursing home is going to take their home. That's not how it works. But let's talk about the two two big, obvious uh, mistakes people are making when they transfer their home to an adult child. The first is a, is a long-term care problem. If you want Medicaid to pay for nursing home care, they look at your income, they look at how much money you have in savings, and then they look at gifting, and they're looking back five years. Well, if you transfer the deed to your house or even part of your house, you add a child as an owner on your house, uh, that's a transfer of some part of the value. And that's going to be, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifting, well, that's going to make you ineligible for Medicaid uh, for a very long time if you did it in the five years before needing Medicaid. And, of course, the problem here is how do we know if we're in that five-year period? I mean, if you have a, a diagnosis already of you know early cognitive impairment or something like that, a heart disease, whatever it might be, you might be in the five-year period um, you know, but you don't always have that kind of warning. The second problem that uh, with with deeding a house or a partial interest in a house over to adult children is taxes. So you're probably familiar with capital gains. You know, you buy a, a stock at one dollar, you sell it at ten dollars, you just made a nine dollar profit. Well, the government comes in with capital gains and they take a chunk out of your profit that you made. And that that's capital gains tax. Well, they don't do that with your primary residence. They let you make a profit of, if you're single, up to $250,000. If you're married, you can profit up to $500,000 on the sale of, a, of your primary residence uh, before you pay any capital gains taxes. So when you give the house away and you, know, you continue to live there, um, you know, you deed it over uh, to protect it, To you deed it over to your children. Well, it's not their primary residence, so they're going to have capital gains tax. And how much are they going to have? Here's the, here's the other part of capital gains tax. Um, they're stuck with the floor for determining that profit with whatever you paid for the property. So if you bought that property in the 1990s for $100,000, 
it's now worth $300,000. They get the house automatically once you leave it to go to, into care or to uh, when you pass away. Well, when they go to sell it, they're stuck with that floor from the 1990s. Whereas if they got the house through your uh, will or through a trust, they would get what's called the step up in basis. So the floor from the 1990s steps up, and now for determining profit, the floor is whatever it's worth on the day you pass away. So there might be zero profit when they sell the house and therefore zero capital gains tax. But people don't think this through. They don't think through the long-term care consequences or the tax consequences. Best way to do it, in my opinion, is a, a Medicaid asset protection trust. I draft these all the time for clients at Keystone Elder Law. It is uh, it avoids it avoids that estate recovery. So the the government's not coming after your house. You preserve the entire value of your house. You get the step up in basis, and you can even do some other things to uh, to protect the inheritance for your child if necessary. Here's another uh, just sort of stepping into the land of myths a little bit. Uh, something that that I hear from people from time to time. Medicaid nursing homes are awful. I don't want to be there. And this isn't just the, I don't want to be in a nursing home at all. That's that's sort of the wishful thinking or the person who sticks their head in the sand and, and just ignores the problem that, that is coming for an awful lot of people. Nursing homes are full of people who were never going to a nursing home. So the people, you know, setting aside the people who just say, take me out and shoot me because they're just leaving the problem for somebody else to clean up. But some people say, I specifically don't want to go to a Medicaid nursing home. Look, there are some very nice nursing homes, and there are some nursing homes that are not so nice. You know, the Medicaid has nothing to do with that. In Cumberland County, for example, every skilled nursing facility except for one, I believe, participates in the Medicaid program. So there are some great places that give great care. And if my own parents needed that level of care, I would have no hesitation uh, placing them there to get to get the help they need, and and Medicaid does uh, is they do participate in Medicaid. So if you can find a, a nursing home that offers great care uh, in a comfortable setting, you, you can have Medicaid pay for that care. Um, you know, on a related matter, and this is more a matter for the elected officials in the state capitol, but this has been in the news. There, there's a massive gap between what the private pay patients are paying every month to the nursing home and what the state pays through Medicaid. So you may have heard about these facilities. There's one in Harrisburg uh, that changed ownership, you know, and the, the owners are saying, look, we're, we're going to go out of business. We're uh, we're, we're, we're losing $100 a day on every resident uh, whose care is paid for by Medicaid. And, you know, you, you can't discriminate on how people uh, pay for their care. That's that's right in the federal law. So they're just losing money hand over fist. Well, if the state simply raised the reimbursement rate uh, and really put the money behind their words that they are looking out for the interests of older Pennsylvanians, then then we would have the care options for our older Pennsylvanians. I'd really like, you know, I I'm, I don't run a nursing home. I have no, no interest in this other than to see my clients get the care that they need. But, you know, we are an aging state. We are an aging country, and the baby boom generation is getting up there. I really think they need to start looking at raising the Medicaid reimbursement rate because, you know, who else is going to care for the, for, for the older adults? You know, children are more mobile than ever. They're moving across the country and around the world. Even if the children were local, they have jobs, they have families. Uh, they can't just drop everything and care 24-7 for parents who need that level of care. So 
just wanted to dispel some myths about Medicaid and what that has to do with the quality of care. Um, here's another one. Before I run out of time, I just want to I want to bring this one up because it has to do with second marriages. It has to do with third marriages and so forth. I've heard people say my money is safe if my wife needs skilled nursing facility care. Why? Because we got a prenup. So my money is mine. Her money is hers. So if she needs care, they're not touching my money. And boy, is this a source of surprise and frustration because and not just for the married couple, how about the the adult children that they had in previous relationships? So here's what a prenup or a postnup does. It waives what's called the elective share. That means that normally you can't cut your your spouse out of your will. Sorry to tell you that. Uh, they're entitled to at least a third of your estate, whatever's in your name when you pass away. But in a prenuptial agreement or postnuptial agreement, what you're saying is, What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. What you know, whatever we brought to the this marriage, we're going to keep separate. And then in our respective wills, we will leave stuff to the kids we had in our previous marriages. But what happens when it comes to Medicaid paying for long-term care? Well, this is the surprise people are in for. Medicaid does not care if you have a prenup or a postnup. They disregard it, and they say, we're looking at both of your incomes. We're, we're looking at everything you have, whether it's separate or whether it's joint. We don't care. Put it all into a bucket. We're going to look at what you have, and it's basically got to re- be reduced, hopefully to keep money in the family, but it's got to be reduced to meet the eligibility standards for Medicaid. And how do we reduce it? Well, there's, there's a number of ways to do it, but if you want to save 100% of the money, you're going to transfer it all to the, the spouse who's healthier and not applying for Medicaid. But that's going to not go over very well with the children of the spouse who does need Medicaid. And these are the, the most emotionally charged cases, and I see them coming a mile away. I try to talk to people well in advance and do some pre-planning. So if they're in a second marriage, they, they have to see this coming. They have to start talking about it. This is where a little bit of seeing the big picture and having a professional guide you through it uh, can show you what's what's up ahead in the road because this this can turn ugly, um, and and so when I when I say in Medicaid planning we're gonna we're gonna put everything into the name of the healthy spouse doesn't that violate the prenup or the postnuptial agreement it sure does but what's the alternative given the the policy of of our state Medicaid agency well you, the the person going into care could just pay significant money to the uh, the nursing home. Option number two, and then it's all gone. Option number two, they could just give money to their adult children who they intended through their will to get it, but now there's a penalty period. You can make transfers to a spouse, but you can't make transfers to children to keep the money in the family without having a penalty period. So we can work with that plan, but you're going to lose a lo- an awful lot of money. It might be you know $100,000, $150,000 or more, depending on how much you transfer. So These are just some of the myths. I only got through eight of them, so we'll have to pick up on this list later. I'm really glad that you're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Please join me next time for an episode of the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm Patrick Cauley with Keystone Elder Law.